0: Thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, have Hasu with me, and today we're delighted to bring you another episode. Um, we're going to be discussing one of the most uh, well well retweeted and sort of well um, well read pieces that we've done in for Deribit Insights, which covers Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559. Uh, so before we begin, um, just to give our viewers a Idea of what we'll be talking about today. Uh, We'll be going through kind of uh, Hasu's article uh, and sort of what you know, what the significance of EIP 1559 is from his point of view, and also uh, what it might mean for Bitcoin as well. Uh, So. With that said, uh, Hasse, why don't you start us off? Uh, you know what what is EIP one five five nine in your own words, and what is it trying to solve?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so EIP one five five nine is a a significant change to the I would say to the block space market mechanism. Uh, a block space market mechanism is is basically a mechanism that uh, determines how uh, a market functions, and it is, in its, in its current form, it, it might just be the biggest change to any blockchain post-release. So it, Ethereum 2.0 is, as a project certainly is like much bigger in scope, but um, if EIP-1559 is implemented, then I, I see that as, as the biggest change uh, to, to any bl- live blockchain, just because of how many different parts uh, it touches. And the for me the the four goals that we identified is um, it could significantly change the user experience um, how users interact with uh, the block space market um, it could um, allow the protocol to target an average block size rather than a fixed block size uh, so some blocks can be bigger uh, as long as others are smaller so that's something that's not possible when you have a rigid block size cap and it also has a very big impact on um, the long-term security model in my opinion and um, not just because it makes minor uh, revenue more predictable but also because it prevents um, economic abstraction uh, ec- economic abstraction is the, the concept where um, basically the the uh, the a blockchain's native asset in this case ether is Demonetized um, over time because users um, basically use another asset, a non-native asset on the chain, as the reserve asset and use it also to pay fees to miners.
0: Okay, well, it's it's quite a mouthful. Uh, It's a yeah. uh, I mean, just as a Bitcoiner, I mean, my 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 initial thought when I read it was like, there are so many changes happening at once, right? And you know, Mm, because yeah, you, you know, like you mentioned, you have the 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 uh, introduction of the base fee idea with the tip and then you also have sort of Mm -hmm. a i guess um like the elastic block size cap right which is so so how does the ethereum community come to a consensus i guess on what this should look like and what goes into the code because obviously there's so many ways you can do it so many ways you could implement it how do they actually like what is that process like how how decentralized or centralized is that process from, from
1: your point of view? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I so the interesting <clears throat> thing for me is that this there's not not a lot of code that goes into this proposal. It's it's just in terms of like how much of the code changes, it's it's really just a handful of lines. And this goes to show just how um how central the the block space market mechanism of a blockchain is to how everything in that blockchain works uh, that you can make like you can change a few lines of codes and suddenly you 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 have big changes in the security model you have big changes in the user experience um, and so on and just in terms of governance so um as far as i can tell the the proposal was pioneered by um a few people um i think as early as like two years ago uh and the the proposal has since then been in review and it's it's only um very slowly moving closer to uh, becoming implemented so i would this is this is um to me like when I look at the proposal for 1559, it looks very different to for example ProcPow, um, which we've talked about at length also. Um, right. So with ProcPow, it's really somehow there's like um, there are like a few people who are like very motivated to, to to integrate it and but then like the community concerns are not really or have not really been addressed and whenever there are people speaking up about it then it disappears from the agenda and then when like the initial storm has gone away then suddenly it it disappears again in the next ethereum all devs call or something like that (laughs) um i I do not have this impression uh for this proposal i don't know if it's due to the people who pioneer it if they are more respectful of um of the governance process than um the 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 people who pioneer prog uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I
0: guess, I guess it's obviously has a lot more backing than Prague which was always divided from the beginning. Um, and I think fundamentally Prague is obviously more of like a zero sum distribution of wealth question, as opposed to sort of, a at, mm. at least ostensibly, I mean, probably people would mm-hmm. tell you differently probably, but ostensibly it is simply saying one group of miners should be
1: preferenced over another, uh, what? No, no, totally, totally, totally. I, I would say, I would go even further. I would say it's yeah. negative sum because it, it redistributes uh, wealth from from run one group to another, but there's nothing there, nothing created. Uh, but at the same time, the security of Ethereum is even yeah. weakened uh, when you basically prevent specialization of mining hardware. But that's, yeah, thanks for that framing because I had not seen PROC powers or like different proposals as like positive sum Zero sum some negative yeah. sums I
0: guess before so so what kind of people are against this proposal and what are the reasons I have seen some people say you know is, is it safe to implement uh, it's such a big change mm-hmm. like how do you think about safety and that kind of thing are there any others
1: yeah I think I think it would, would be helpful if I gave it like a, a very short uh, intro like what the changes are on a technical yeah. level and then we can go into like what what, what are the concerns with these changes? So um, basically, uh, in, a ve- in a few words, the proposal is this. There's no longer a single fee. There are two fees. One is called a base fee, which is burned. Um, and then there's a, a tip. The tip goes to the miners. Um, we define a target block size um, of 10 million gas for now and a max block size that is twice the amount of the target block size. So it would be 20 million gas. Uh, And the result is that um, blocks can be up to 20 million gas, but there's a mechanism in place that basically where the the protocol targets a a long-term usage of 10 million gas per block. Um, And it achieves that by changing the base fee upwards and downwards. And this works, like if you're familiar with uh, like how derivatives exchanges works, this is very similar uh, to funding rate for example where the funding is also like a fee to uh to uh to one side of the trade to like incentivize or disincentivize a specific behavior and so the largest concern that i'm aware of is that um it gives like the proposal gives miners uh control over the block size uh, over the block size uh, and ultimately how much fees uh, users pay but the concern is not really that like miners drive up the fees or anything like that but the the, the concern is that miners can uh, can lower the, the base fee to zero and then the the system falls back to the current state where users basically compete only via the single fee uh, for inclusion and that's it's a a, a classic first price auction but I mean this already describes why I think this concern is like makes little sense because at the worst uh, what will happen is EIP like this this proposal would recreate the existing state but it's it's not even I don't even see how that happens because um, people need to realize that miners already control um, the block size and the fees if sufficient of like if if enough of them collude right so if you have a majority of hash power then you can enforce um uh basically any kind of rule that you want you can say blocks above 10 million gas are no longer allowed to be mined and if if another miner mines these blocks then you just ignore the block and it it eventually becomes stale and likewise if you say okay so no Transaction fee below $100, like a hundred dollars, like no transaction uh, below a hundred dollars uh, fee is uh, allowed to be mined. Then you can also implement that. So it, it's really no different in in one five five nine. So if yes, miners control the block size, but they control it. But it depends on them having like sufficient hash power, and there's not really anything they can do with if they have like a small amount of hash power. It's, it's it's basically everything works the same as it works right. today so
0: so how does it work at, you know with in conjunction with eth2 where in e2 eventually mm-hmm. it goes to proof of stake and uh validators will be receiving yeah. fees as well uh in the long run mm-hmm. how how will it transition over from from you know miners uh doing this into eth2 or is it is that question
1: itself kind of spurious Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to talk about the proposal just in terms of where it is implemented. Uh, I don't I don't think that's like a difference if you do it in Proof-of-Work or Proof-of-Stake. Um, guess, Guess. let me think if there's actually a difference because you, you might be onto something. So in Proof-of-Work, it's the miners, right? Who get the transaction fees, but in Proof-of-Stake, it is the stakers. And <clears throat> the proposal that, or like the concern that we just talked about it worries that the miners basically redirect the f- the base fee which is is indirectly goes to the holders right because if the fee is burned then it's a deflationary pressure on the on the coin supply and it benefits anyone who already holds the coin but if the um of course if the miners and the holders are the same as they are in proof of stake because you use stake to uh you, you need stake instead of mining hardware then this this might even be like an even smaller concern right because you no longer redirect um money from stakers to miners but yeah. from non-stakers to stakers and like that exactly, yeah. i think the intersection of these two groups is like yeah okay yeah
0: cool i guess moving on uh what you know what do you think bitcoin can learn from this proposal, if anything. And I mean, that's always a very controversial way to phrase uh, sort of uh, developments Mm. on other blockchains. But, um, you know, is there merit in this approach? Do you see Bitcoin going down this kind of a direction in the long run as well?
1: Mm. Um, I think it's definitely worth considering. So I'm I'm very uh, conscious or I'm very worried about like long term, the security model long-term because it doesn't look very stable to me that you would have uh, the security the security of your blockchain be dependent on transactional demand versus like in relation to transactional supply which are like one thing is the the demand is like entirely out of your control and the supply is also like you you would, you would love to increase it, right? So if there's like even a technological breakthrough, for example, and suddenly we learn how to scale blockchains, uh, then, you know, what, what we the scenario we have in Bitcoin right now is sort of like an innovator's dilemma, where even if we knew how to scale, then we couldn't do it because it would destroy the, like, the incentive system that we have right yeah. now in Bitcoin. Because if there, if there was like too much t- supply in terms of like transactional capacity, then It would undermine uh, the way that security is generated. So, I would like, for me personally, I would like if Bitcoin uh, transisted to a different model, maybe like a very different model, maybe it's only a slightly different model, like some kind of like support, support structure around the system that we have right now. Um. So where one five five nine is very interesting to me is the in the sense that. Uh, obviously, it's very good if you have um, perpetual issuance, if you because it um, be- because it makes the miner income stream very predictable. Like miners as a whole have like very, they know they make at least uh, x amount of the coin supply per year, and that's that's like, that's highly predictable, and it always creates this forward momentum uh, for this incentive for the blockchain investor to move forward. Um, which is what what we want, um, but at the same time, it doesn't automatically mean that that the coin holders are even diluted, and this is this is the main concern that Bitcoin holders have, right? So uh, they don't want perpetual issuance because uh, they want the twenty one million uh, coin uh, supply cap to be respected. Definitely. They, they 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 see that as holy. So and that is. Totally fair. Um, so what 1509 does it, and why I find it very interesting is it does increase. The, so you have this inflationary pressure on the coin supply from the perpetual issuance, uh, but you also have the deflationary pressure from the fee burn on the other end. So there's not even a guarantee that, uh, that the coin supply even increases at the bottom line. So it might totally be possible that we burn more uh, coins from transaction fees then we issue to miners and we still get the security so it's 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 almost like you have a like a layer of insurance there um you know how 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 controversial
0: do you think your current view you you know that that you sort of described is among i guess the, the the sort of bitcoin core developer community and then sort of um you know, like like how aware are, are, are large Bitcoin holders as well that mm-hmm. this may be something that they eventually need to weigh on, you know, weigh in on and and participate in that governance.
1: Uh, you mean the just the fact that uh, that Im- the declining block yeah. block subsidy is like yeah. a long term risk. Oh, I think like I think they're very aware. Um, so mm-hmm. I was um, I was at a, at an event where uh, there were. Uh, also, a few Bitcoin core developers there, and like the there was like a a, a question in, in a discussion group, and it was so. Do you wish like it was a very provocative <laughs> question of like, do you wish something around the lines of do you would you have preferred Bitcoin to have started with um like t- tail inflation or perpetual issuance, and like almost like all the hands went up except what just a few right. So um and it was pretty interesting to me because I mean it it shows that like people are very very aware of the risk but they also they see this constraint of it's so like this Bitcoin is the way it is right now and it's like extremely hard to change they see this constraint as like even larger right so there are a lot of people who wish that Bitcoin would have been invented differently and it would have been probably just as successful Um, but it's very very hard to change anything major in Bitcoin after the fact um so that's why yeah i'm more interested in like proposals that like the more realistic it is to be implemented i think the the more interested i am personally in it so some anything that you can build around like the major constraints um of the protocol those are like the most interesting to me and that's why like i i'm not optimistic that we'd ever get like perpetual assurance in bitcoin even combined with like a fee burn. It's just, even though it like might be, like you might even end up with like fewer coins than 21 million, right? So it's, but but it's still, in my opinion, not likely. Um, what is more interesting is proposals that, like where we try to, we extend like the range of things that we can actually control, right? So, so I said, okay, we can, we can control the supply of block space. Uh, like we can't control the demand of block space right but we, we can sort of control the supply of block space um, and then you know maybe via that way we can try to target like a specific fee revenue or something so if we if we had like a, a, a mechanism that always targeted a specific level of congestion in the blocks in the blockchain so there's always like a minimum fee generated and then if, if if enough fees are there then you can safely increase the capacity to decrease like the, the burden on transact on transactors without you know decreasing the operational security of the chain so this is something that you can build in my opinion on top of uh, on top of what we have right now like it would it would like respect all the binding constraints uh, of the bitcoin social contract and eip 1559 it 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 for me it like shifts the overton window in terms of like what's possible in terms of uh block space market um proposals so there was actually like a very there was like a a very big movement in bitcoin actually in terms of like it was always clear that we need an adaptive block size uh eventually and this was like this was like canon among core developers all throughout like 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, and then it sort of like kind of fell a bit out of fashion but not for any fundamental reasons. I think people were just occupied with something else and like one of the largest proponents which was Greg Maxwell, uh, who was Greg Maxwell. He also stepped down from Bitcoin core development. Um, so basically all the people who were like v- were very in favor of it and what this very holistic view of how chain security works and how Bitcoin works, how the incentives all play together. So they kind of, they were like the, the ones who were very vocal about this in the past. And they sort of stepped down from Bitcoin development. Also someone like Mini uh, Rosenfeld, for example, he also um, uh, made a proposal in that direction. So Georgios and I, this, we actually do like a, a longer term project of reviving all of these proposals and looking at the different ways to do uh elastic block sizes um and we look at we, we are currently looking at all the past proposals in bitcoin but also in proposals that are live on other blockchains and proposals that are basically that could be implemented on other chains and we just want to map out like the whole yeah. design space and and somehow bring this back to the that, forefront that's really interesting uh, too in because bitcoin. Because you know, what, when
0: we talk about adaptive block size, it kind of reminds me of, you know, Bitcoin ABC and sort of, uh, you know, the, the whole Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash debate as well back then where, mm-hmm. um, you know, y- y- you had a fascinating tweet the other day where you were talking about how, you know, the offs between, uh, you know, block size and, uh, you know, verifiability and then with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, transferability as well and how, you know, you know. Yeah. In- in BTC today, we, we, we focus a lot on you know the victories of of that approach, but not as much on the you know the dangers as well of that approach, and it kind of ties yeah. into what we spoke about last episode as well with the custodial risk. Um, do you do you think that you know if if sort of Bitcoin Cash supporters or or, or sort of l- larger block size adaptive size supporters back then had better proposals, that they would have been more likely implemented? and sort of avoided a fork? I I guess it's it's a very historical revisionist question, but Hmm. uh, sort of, you you can take it however direction you want, this question.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I I, like, I can only, it's always very hard if you came into the space in like 2017, 18, and then all your knowledge about the times back then is like, is after acquired after the fact, right? So, already the information that I am exposed to about these times is sort of, uh, is a result of who won these debates, sort of, right? So, um, it definitely seemed to me, like from what I read, that that maybe the, the Bitcoin, like the larger block supporters did not respect as much the, like the governance process and the peer review process. So, that's something that I, that has been mentioned to me over the over time uh, a couple of times, right? So, uh, just trying to circumvent um, uh, basically the developers of, of Bitcoin D and Bitcoin Core later. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, very likely that if the governance process had been more respected, then maybe there wouldn't have been as much of a fallout, and maybe there w- could have been a compromise. But but ultimately. I'm not sure how you would have compromised um like two very different approaches I guess like i i if you look at like the b c h people now, so they kind of like i don't know where their block says cap is is now, but they they also say like okay so the the b s v people are like they are like completely crazy right so like several hundred megabyte blocks it just doesn't make sense, it's clearly insecure um so they are not very the BCH people are not even very removed. They're not very. It's almost like same far as away from yeah, it's the almost concerns. Like convergence of, of yeah. the
0: philosophy. Where now now you're at like the. It reminds me of like Gulliver's Travels almost. It's like you have the huge people and then the tiny people, and now the humans <laughs> are just the same as yeah. It's almost the same.
1: Yes. Yes. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So somehow like the the, the BCH people they, they just give like the same talking points that the against the BSV people that the BTC supporters gave against the bch supporters um and it just shows that okay so maybe like the difference between the two groups wasn't so yep. big after all right so there were some people whose like uh, beliefs believe definitely not uh, possible to like reconcile but i mean maybe i could imagine that like bch eventually collapses back into btc and just bsv stays as its own project i i'm not sure if there's like really room for uh like a middle ground there uh that that bch is trying to occupy right now and it i I guess it shows right and how the market just doesn't pay attention to it anymore um i guess uh
0: you know one one i guess more philosophical question that i've always wondered about is sort of you know as you have more layer two solutions both on ethereum and on bitcoin that that sort of Mm -hmm. takes fees away that would have been paid to miners in l1 uh, in Mm. in layer one, but it does allow more scalability. How do you kind of avoid that sort of, you know, what you mentioned, which is the the innovators curse where uh, you ultimately can't get enough fees onto layer one because you've created ways for people to get out, you know, get around it by transacting
1: uh, not
0: on chain sort
1: of. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, this is a really difficult question um it it depends maybe on the type of layer 2 so if, they, if it's a i will, I tend to call these crypto economic yeah. layer 2s and those are ones that use resources from the base layer for their security uh, or, or their security depends on the base layer whereas something like coinbase for example is also a layer 2 yeah. in some sense but it doesn't depend on doesn't really depend on using the base layer at all it's just it's it's totally independent system it depends more on assets uh, or like resources outside of bitcoin like the reputation like coinbase's reputation and uh, like the motivation of its shareholders to profit maximize and so on so this sort of is what aligns them with with bitcoin whereas yeah the, the layer 2s you so um I can't really Im- imagine uh, a layer two that becomes very successful that doesn't also create upwards pressure on base layer fees. I, at least, I mean, at least in Bitcoin, right? So um, in the Lightning Network, you need to always be able to publish uh, basically a justice transaction. It is when that that is when when there's an un- non cooperative uh, channel close and someone tries to to publish an old state where they have more money than they actually have and then you you need to be able to get the right state onto the main chain and uh, if that's not possible then i mean the light network is is not trustless so hmm, i i would think that i would think that the light network definitely produces like a steady flow of on-chain transaction fees i wouldn't really be worried about that this is also a result of just like the light network kind of stretches the the design space of like what's even possible right. in terms of Bitcoin layer 2 just because of uh, how not very expressive like it is on Ethereum I'm not super in touch with all of the different um, proposals so there are like at least three different versions of roll up now and I'm I don't know how many uh, transactions are uh, necessary for them, but I, I also think it's not its not like a huge breakthrough in terms of scaling. It's more like it's a relatively small increase, like a, I, don't, I guess a two to five X or something in terms of like how many transactions you can get in. And I think the benefit comes mainly from not having to uh, get the signatures on chain so this the signature validation part but that's I that's something that I want to learn more about but in in either case i i, I don't think this is something that it's not it's not really something that I worry about that uh, a a crypto economic layer to become so successful that it uh, basically remove like that there are no transaction fees on the base layer anymore just because how these these, these layers, they still depend heavily on getting transactions included, like frequent transactions included in the base layer. The concern for me is definitely more around the the layers like, like Coinbase uh, that don't need to put, like they don't have any need to use the base layer. You, they are like totally independent.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess changing tact a bit, um, you know, my, my thoughts when I first saw EIP one five five nine and sort of the considerations were mm-hmm. that uh, they were thinking a lot harder about how to um, sort of give more intrinsic value to the ether token on on its chain. You know, mm-hmm. one with the with the burning of the base fee, and then also of um, so, sort of removing uh, the possibility of economic abstraction. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, the the thought that struck me was sort of, are they sort of very much optimizing for the price of Ether and for the security of Ether now, as opposed to, you know, the original vision in the beginning was, you know, or well, not original vision, P- people would debate what the original vision is, but, you know, the the original meme of World Computer and, and, and DApps and all this kind of stuff, because, you know, among some people that, that I talk to, you know, some Ethereum OGs and, you know, older DApp projects that they're just like, we have no idea how to you know write a dapp for Ethereum anymore because the fees mm. go all over the place. You know, it takes me so much money to 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 deploy, and then the next day my, my clients have to spend way more. Do you do you ultimately see Ethereum as not being able to be a place where people can deploy dapps, or is the idea of a dapp itself on Ethereum kind of flawed from the beginning? And that now now it's sort of it's not a use case of blockchain, and now we're kind of seeing why it's not a use case of blockchain.
1: Um no i think i think that ethereum like i see like one five five nine, is super positive for uh ethereum as a place to yeah. develop dapps uh so there are a few reasons so i mean you you mentioned the economic abstraction this is not something that that dapps suffer from in my opinion i think it's quite the opposite actually so they benefit from like the 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 one of the reasons is why you wouldn't want to make your own chain as a as like a dapp is you uh, so one is you want the composability so you want to be in, in one shared database with like everyone else where all the tokens live and so on where all the users already have a wallet but the other one is that you don't want to pay for your own security so and you, if you're a DApp that lives on bitcoin uh, on ethereum then you benefit from from the the security of ethereum that is paid for by the holders of the native token like if it's an inflation-based chain, then then it's paid for by the holders. And if it's a fee-only chain, then it's paid for by transactors. Um, and if, if you prevent economic abstraction, then that should ultimately be good for the value of the native token. So DEBs have a strong incentive for the value of the native token to be high. So they, they benefit in that sense, that they get more security without having to pay for it. Does that I make sense?
0: It, it makes some sense. I I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts on sort of the the uh, sort of Cosmos or Polkadot kind of uh, rebuttal to that or, or sort of approach, which is, to, which is to say, you know, should should sort of dApps be living on their own chains uh, and then sort of have a shared security uh, and therefore the transaction costs that they have to incur when transactions, you know, when, when calculations occur, when they want to update state, uh, that they're not sort of having to, uh, you know, you know go into the volatile markets and have to bid constantly for for transactions for Mm. for compute. Um or do you think sort of Ethereum layer two uh will ultimately be how those dApps will will kind of solve solve that?
1: Yeah that's a great question. So I I don't really feel so comfortable about Cosmos and Polkadot yet and like I I probably be able to say more when they are actually they're live real. and there's yeah, some they're real. like, <laughs> I, I, I guess Cosmos is live, but I don't know any, any depth that that uses it yet. So, um, so it's very hard to observe yet. What's what, what, like, what actually the depths think about this. Right. Um, I guess just, I guess that like, if you, if you're just thinking about security, the model is not that different, right? Because I, I guess even in a chain like Cosmos, uh, the devs pay more for security. Like in Ethereum, the, the security just comes free to them, but the transaction yeah. fees are higher. So that that would maybe be. But the main, I, th- I guess, the main reason why you would want to use uh, Polkadot or Cosmos if you're a dev is like if like you want an yeah. app chain, right? That's that's what it's called. Is um, is the governance, right? So you, if you have a dev, then you you of course want like the chain to work in a way that's, that's good for your business model. Yeah. And there's quite the design space there. So uh, like if you have like a fi- file sharing application <clears throat> on Ethereum today, then you have no lobby among yeah. no Ethereum one governance. Yeah.
0: It's like with the Aragon, you know, it's, no one cares what they think in Ethereum governance.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, it's, it's always inevitable that like a chain like Ethereum uh, converges into one direction, and then like spec like specialized in that you can't be you can't be general purpose. It's just not how the world works, uh, at least not like infinitely general purpose. So you can't respect like the wishes of everyone. Uh, you, in in Ethereum, the way it works is you have such a large bundled interest now from the DeFi apps like Maker Compound, like just the two of them probably can like, steer ethereum governance to a degree just because of like how valuable they are to the community uh like their voice is uh, is really valuable um and if you're a smaller depth that is not aligned with the like what the, the kind of um changes that um define needs then i think you have a strong incentive to just make an an application chain And then you can exactly control the rules of your own chain Uh, so that's that would be like a strong incentive for me as an app developer to use something like um yeah cosmos or or polkadot but circling back to what uh, 1559 means for app developers so i wanted to talk uh, a little bit about the user experience of transaction fees so the way it works right now is there's a first price auction and so everyone just transmits their bids and then like the, the like the highest paying bids are, are included right so in a block in the blocks fixed capacity and this is like there are some problems with this user experience namely you don't know how much others are going to bid and you also don't know when the next block is going to come in because of the poisson process and the result is that fee estimation is extremely difficult, right? So if you expect others to bid more, then you're going to bid more, and like you're already going to bid bid more than you maybe have to, right? So you you you're always in a in a first place option, You're always going to bid more than what the transaction but then then is necessary to be included in a block, and that drives up the cost for everyone, sort of. And it's just very very tricky uh, problem and the way EMP1559 works is that there's no longer a first price auction uh, except for one um, exception that we'll talk about in a second but it it actually implements a a fixed price sale so the way that transactions are going to work is it's like you go into a store today and you see an item that is at sale at a certain fixed price right so and then you can just decide: uh, Do I buy it or not? Do I do I get my like? Do I broadcast my transaction and get it included in the block or not? And um, you're almost always going to be able to co- go into the block um, at that price. So there's no fee estimation on your part necessary anymore. It's a, it, it, like block space, The block space market turns into a binary decision for you as a user. And that is, in my opinion, is, is so much That's better true. user experience than what we have right now. Um, so the exception that I that I mentioned is when, so when when blocks are actually close to the 20, 20 million gas limit, then there's no more access room uh, for miners to include transactions. And then there needs to be another thing that like uh, decides priority between users. And that is when the tip auction when basically users start a first press auction with a tip uh but the the number like the number of users that can participate in such a tip auction is like is way smaller because uh it's like so the the, the way that it works is uh the the base fee it climbs very high uh, very fast um if blocks are very far away from 10 million gas for for like a period of time so it, it only takes around 20 minutes for fees to go from uh, like the, the neutral starting point to uh, around like several hundred seven several hundred dollars per per transaction so when uh, this is this is same as like the funding rate again it's how the when when the actual block size goes like way out of whack with the target block size then the the funding rate like really explodes and starts to push the market in the other direction and this is exactly how 1559 works also so if if the if the, the blockchain is very congested so it's uh, for a while then you start to get this like intense pressure for the block size to go down again mm-hmm. so it's almost like you can mine larger blocks than 10 million gas um but it's only borrowed so the, the the all the transactions as a whole can like borrow more blocks like more capacity from the near future, but then they have to repay it by like a few minutes later, usually by mining smaller blocks. So it's uh, it just goes to show that this the the tip auction can only last for a few minutes at a time. So most of the time, it will be purely the base fee that determines. Inclusion in a block, and whenever that is the case, then um, it is entirely binary the decision for you to go into a block or not. Sense. And another underappreciated benefit for depths, or maybe even more for like layer two solutions, is the so it is if you think about how, uh, how could uh, layer twos or depths learn if a blockchain is currently congested. So the only, you could look at the block size, uh, but miners can can put like garbage transactions in a block and it doesn't cost them anything, right? So if a block is only like 50% full, they can at no cost to themselves, at almost no cost to themselves, put like garbage transactions in there to make it seem like the block's full. Um, And they can also, if they want, they can also like, make fees into these transactions and then pay fees to themselves which is also costless so this this goes to show that you can't measure congestion by looking at the block size or how much transaction fees are in a block because these are things that miners control and can manipulate at no cost to themselves so these are not these are not functional oracles for chain congestion but if we have if you have a functioning oracle for chain congestion then we can do some neat stuff with that. Uh, for example, you can tie uh, liquidations in a system like Maker to the current chain congestion. So if uh, the chain is currently very congested, then the or like the the liquidation auction in something like Maker or Compound could last longer. Like at least, like you could say, okay, it, it lasts at least. Uh, X blocks longer or whatever, when the chain is very congested or until the the congestion has disappeared. So it's almost like, do you remember when you wrote this article for, for insights on, um, on how exchanges handle like these huge volatility spikes, uh, when they go into like some kind of like grace period where basically all trading stops, uh, until like the order flow is, uh, Yes, yeah. you know, I,
0: like a volatility auction, um, like auction process, basically.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is all stuff that you could do um, on chain also, like in depth, but only if you actually provably know that, like if it can't be manipulated, that there's real congestion. And this is what the base fee actually gives you, because the base fee creates a, an unforgeable oracle for how congested the chain really is because miners could drive up the base, but for they sure. don't get it. But yeah. they because, would pay. Because it's burned, they don't get it. Yes, so exactly. It's a much better oracle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just great for dApps who want to make congestion controlled options and liquidations. It's also great for layer two solutions. They can like, they all rely on some in some form other on like challenge periods where um, where only if the operator of the layer 2 misbehaves or like in Lightning, for example, if the, uh, if the channel counterparty misbehaves, mm-hmm. then there's always a, a sort of challenge period where the, the honest party can publish a transaction on the base chain and then, you know, the, the, the malicious party gets punished. Um, and you can extend this period safely uh, or like you can way lower this, uh, this challenge period when the chain is not congested and you can increase it when when the chain is congested. So just the ability to have this oracle for chain congestion is, I think it will open up a new um, design space that we can't yet uh, really cool. grasp. Do you
0: think that, uh, you know, given how, how constructive you are on the EIP and given that it holds the potential for Ethereum to actually have a lower issuance rate than Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, do you see a scenario where that kind of actually Heard Bitcoin's narrative in some way, where uh, you know Bitcoin tries to lay claim to sort of absolute scarcity uh, or sort of the, <laughs> the the sort of Bitcoin monetary maximalism uh, kind of framework. Do you think that Ethereum hitting those goals and having a lower inflation rate would would ultimately be tough on Bitcoin?
1: Oh yeah, I I think so. So it's really hard to get Bitcoin to change, right? But you, you need to. You need to. Uh, what always needs to exist is okay. So we need to change, or we're gonna die. <laughs> so uh, I guess that's like the one, the one example where there's actually a desire to change in, in 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 the Bitcoin governance process. When it's you do have no other choice, right? Then then you you're willing to do it. So I think it's 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 a great way to move the Overton window in terms of like changes to Bitcoin by. Wow. You know if if other chains are very uh, successful using a similar So your proposal, prediction would right? be then that just uh, it
0: goes very well the proposal and the and the implementation and then bitcoin mm-hmm. you know ether BTC ratio goes up a lot, ether goes you know adoption goes up a lot, and then Bitcoin will have pressure to to use some of these principles that, that that's sort of your
1: yeah I think so, I think so. Um, well, and it also just it, it it it's always good to have a reference. It's always good to have a proposal that you're thinking about already implemented in, let's say an incentivized testnet, right? So that's how Bitcoin thinks about all these other chains that are live, right? So they are kind of incentivized testnets, uh, at least how some people in the community think about it because it, it, the proposals are actually under real like economic pressure, and like they exist in a real adversarial, in, adversarial environment where if they can be broken, you, you have quite the certainty that they yeah. would be broken because there's like a real incentive to break them. Um, So yeah, those are two ways that I think uh, creates pressure for similar solutions to be included in Bitcoin. Thanks for listening in, guys.
0: Uh, That's all we have today. Uh, Hope it wasn't too technical. I I do think that um, I've definitely learned a lot and I hope you guys did too. Um, I think whether you're following Ethereum or Bitcoin more closely, um, it's definitely a very important space to understand.